We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we are live. It is the Tuesday evening edition of the Field of 68 After Dark. My name is Rob Dosser. I am joined by my co-host, Archie Miller, former head coach at Indiana University, as well as Sean Miller, his brother, believe it or not, who is the former head coach at Arizona. Uh, Unlike Wells Fargo Arena in Tempe, we have the power, the lights, and the water on at the Field of 68. We can pay our bills here. Uh, Gentlemen, how are we doing? I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm stressed right now. We got... UConn is up 66-65 at Marquette with four minutes left. So hopefully you guys are having a, a, a more calm night than I am right now. Well, yeah, it's, um, go ahead. Rob, you know, you have Danny Hurley in this game and fighting for his life, 66-65. And poor Bobby couldn't even get out to the jump ball because the lights didn't work. I mean, I don't know if everybody really understood what you said, but the arena had no lights, no water. Uh, they may need a new billboard on I-10 between Tucson and in Phoenix. You know, water running. I mean, it's a, it's a bad it's it's a bad look right there. I'm not sure what happened, but I feel bad for the players and the coaches. Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand how that happens, man. At, at an actual arena, you can't pay the bills. You can't keep the lights on. What's going on? <laughs> I, I know tuition there isn't cheap. So like something's got to go. Yeah, I think everybody left for the holidays maybe a couple days too early, you know, for sure. But good to see you, Rob. Good to see you in uh, kind of an awkward period of time in college basketball with COVID, the end of the semester, which sometimes I think people forget that, you know, the stress of waiting for a grade, taking the test, you know, um, getting through that finals week and now, the other part of it is all these guys, are they going home for Christmas? Are they not? And then, you know, as a coach, you're always stressed about those opening games after Christmas because, you know, sometimes they're incredibly meaningful games. That means the beginning of conference play. So you put all that together. I don't know if we've had a, a holiday season really like this in college basketball. Yeah, so kind of take me through this, guys. If you are if you're coaching in this situation, if you're if you're dealing with players that are looking forward to getting home, and you you're dealing with players, I mean, you you live through it with players that are living basically test by test whether or not they're actually going to be able to step foot on the court. How do you how do you handle this? How do how do you manage uh, keeping a team focused on the task at hand, March? I'll say this: that this is a, this is one of the toughest times um, to be a coach with a team is this last couple weeks of December. You know, maybe even right after you get through Thanksgiving, to be honest with you, because there's a lot of things going through 
you know, your players' heads. One, they got all this testing coming up, you know, with finals. Coaches still on them hard to practice and get to work because you have some really important, sometimes very big, high-profile non-conference games leading in. And then, and then you have the holiday break, which for most guys in a normal year, show up in August, been going every single day. This is my last time to get two to three days off before I take it all the way to April. And um, it's a time that you can lose guys. They, they lose their mind for a quick minute. And you can see teams really drop one they're not supposed to right before the holiday break. Or, you know, in some cases, you know, with school, you see a player really tired, fatigued, not, you know, not playing well. And um, I tell you, it's hard, but you have to balance the amount of time that you're spending with them on a daily basis with the, you know, some extra days off try to keep your film sessions a lot shorter um, and try like crazy to keep the energy level going because you think about it right now, UConn, Marquette, Xavier, Villanova, they were in a huge conference opening game. And, and for Marquette and UConn, they're both 0-1 to start the Big East. Like there's no time for those guys to really be thinking about going home and all that stuff. So it's always a delicate time, especially with finals. I always felt finals week was just – it was a drudgery week. We couldn't wait to get through it and get all the guys back. And, you know, they get a nice deep breath of fresh air with Christmas holiday because there's no more classes. Yeah. And it's not just the the fact that you're dealing with all of the distractions and, and uh, the holidays and, and, and kids kind of being mentally checked out. You don't have the students there, right? Yeah, it, it, right? It completely changes what the atmosphere is. And I think that we're seeing that a little bit with some of these, these arenas where maybe there aren't quite as many fans because everyone's kind of, uh, cognizant of the fact that Omicron is 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 uh, spreading everywhere right now, right, Sean? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the hardest things to do, Rob, as a coach and a team is is what UConn's dealing with. So they have, you know, their their opening Big East weekend against Providence, right? Uh, home game, incredibly big game in New England, packed house, lot of energy. UConn, Providence in the Big East with fans, uh, and then they lose the game. And now you have to bounce back from that tough loss at home to go on the road against Marquette now and now play another conference game before Christmas with all the other things that we just talked about, right? The semester ending, are these guys going home for Christmas? Uh, I think everybody has the fear of what's next with COVID, the testing, et cetera. And it's a difficult uh, task. This would be tonight if UConn could beat Marquette on the road would be an incredibly incredible job well done uh, for Danny Hurley and his staff simply because there's so many things pulling against him and his team um, uh, to be able to go from what we just talked about to go up to Milwaukee and win on the road. And I know we're coming down the home stretch right now. What, what do you guys think college basketball should do right now? We're, we're kind of, I feel like that's the, the major talking point for pretty much all sports right now is, is do you want to put this thing on a pause? Do we uh, keep going the way that we were going where everybody lives and dies with the test that they get every single morning? We saw tonight with, with UConn and Marquette, um, Daryl Morcell was ruled out right before the game because of COVID protocols, which probably means in the next couple of days, we're going to see UConn and, and Marquette both end up with outbreaks. But that's just, that's where we are right now. We had Kansas and Colorado canceled uh, two hours before that game was supposed to tip, tip off. So if you're, if you're the one making the decision here, Arch, what, what are you doing? What, what are you doing with college hoops? What are you doing with your team? Um, with your conference? You know, in a perfect world, which 
college basketball is not a perfect world because not everybody's under one uniform. You know, it would be easy if, say, a commissioner of college basketball and or the NCAA had the ability and the power to say, okay, all 356 teams, this is now your new normal. Everybody tests every single day. And uh, from this point forward, we're always going to have a gauge on a positive test and how that impacts the other guys who are negative. Um, but you just don't have that ability level, the resources or the funds, you know, to test everybody. But I think in a perfect world, when you come back from the holiday break, um, I think you're going to have to go back into sort of what we did in the Big Ten a year ago uh, to protect your guys. And that's going to be that everyday testing starts in the morning, six, seven o'clock every day, seven days a week. And if you have a positive you get that confirmation test. And if it is, it is a, in fact, a hundred percent a positive case, he goes into whatever protocols you have, whether that's a 10 day isolation, et cetera. And as long as you continue to keep testing negative, your other group, because you're testing every day can continue to move forward. And if you have an outbreak where you lose a significant number of people, then you can put your team on a pause. I think now Um, And I don't have all the answers, but, you know, if you have a positive test right now, because you're not testing every day, you're going to have to ramp up your testing and go figure out who else is sick. You don't have those weeks, long weeks of evidence saying, hey, player A tested positive today, but his roommate's been negative for the last 21 days. So as long as he's negative tomorrow morning, he can continue on where they're losing that ability just because I doubt very highly everyone is testing every single day like a few leagues were Big Ten. I know Sean was in the Pac-12 doing it a year ago. But if you test every day, at least it gives you the satisfaction of knowing who every day is coming into your facility that's negative. And that gives you the ability to keep moving forward without having to shut down. Um, but I, I worry in the next week, I was we were just saying that last year at this time, I remember the hot discussion is, do you let your team go home for Christmas? You know, and in, in my in my time as a player and as a coach, that was never, ever even on the table of not going home. You, everybody needs that break. It's You need to see your family, especially nowadays with everything that's gone on. But, you know, do you let your guys go home now for three days with this thing that's raging, come back on the 26th and everyone starts testing on the 26th? You know, is there a chance five or six of your guys could come back six and you and you lose the next three weeks to a pause? I think that's a good a good uh, that's a good chance of that happening to some teams after this holiday break. And and the the problem with it, though, is it like that. That's probably just going to happen anyways with the way that this thing is spread. Right. So yeah, like, I think so. I think just to play devil's advocate, like I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't have any answers. I'm not I'm not a scientist. Right. I'm not even a very good basketball analyst. But I do think that. Um, what you see the NFL doing where they're not testing people that are, that are not showing symptoms. Like I do think at some point as a society, we're going to have to get to a point where like, okay, that's what the norm's got to be because otherwise. Especially with the vaccinations now in your, in your, we didn't have this a year ago. You know, this year is a totally different ball game with vaccines. And that's the, that's the big difference, Rob, is the fact, the vaccination. If, If you have a player that's fully vaccinated, you know, what category does he go into? Is it different in any way? Because I think it's been proven that you can be fully vaccinated and, and get COVID, test positive. Um, and how, how does that all play into it? But, you know, a year ago is really hard. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. There's not anybody in the world 
especially in the sports world that doesn't look back to a year ago without fans, the testing and just shake your head and say, we really powered through that. Uh, With the vaccination now moving forward, hopefully that comes into play to help everybody just continue to move forward and maybe better days are ahead a month or two from now. You know, the other thing, Rob, was I know in in the Big Ten in, in particular, the league was smart on the front end of building in uh, a couple periods of time mm-hmm. for every team on the schedule that if there was a shutdown, yeah. there would be an opportunity to make up some games. So like right now, if a team like I think Seton Hall and maybe, maybe St. John's have forfeited a couple big East games already, you know, you don't have to get that game. You can come back around the clock, maybe in a built-in bye week and make that game up uh, because we all know every team's resume depends on quality wins and, you know, a team like St. John's, they need one. Forfeit rule, right? They, I mean, I think so. Think about it like this: DePaul is nine and one overall on the season right now, and right. they're going to win the Big East. How stupid is that? Right. That's the other part to forfeit. It happened early in the Pac-12 with Washington. Washington was one of the first teams to get a COVID uh, problem within their within the team, and the forfeit rule was already in play. I wouldn't be surprised if if as conferences move on, if they don't revisit, revisit the, the forfeit, the forfeitures. Cause that's to your point, Arch, you, me- you mentioned it with no ability to make up games. You don't want to cost a team or your, even your conference, a potential bid, because these are meaningful. Games. Like if you're Colorado, you have an opportunity to play Kansas at home. You can't play that game. I know that's non-conference, but that makes a big, big difference in your non-conference resume and schedule schedule that you play rob i want to make sure that i heard you right though tonight arizona state was going to play florida a&m is that right yeah they, but, but they did not cancel the game because of covid the lights didn't work and neither did the water am i right about that did i hear you right on that you, you did you did you can't play a game in the dark that, that's a fact. I mean, right? like, I, I don't know much about COVID. I don't know much about basketball, but I do know that you need the lights on in the gym. I wonder if they called Arizona, you know, get on a bus, just come up to McHale and just play the game there. I mean, I think the cats are out of town. I mean, geez, I mean, that right there. Or, you know, look at it this way. You got the Suns playing. Is there any way maybe they can get like the first, maybe play at halftime, play before the game, after the game, you know, break it up. But, but get the game in. I mean, those poor kids. Damn. Uh, UConn, UConn, by the way, uh, just took a, a nine-point lead with less than a minute left. I, I don't even think the Huskies are capable of blowing this lead. That might be my favorite. But, but I'll tell you, though. Blow from Marquette, though, Rob. Not having Daryl Marcel in this game is a big deal. Brutal. It's brutal. And, um, but, but I just want to give just UConn to credit. Give UConn credit, what we just talked about. You lose a tough home game against Providence. It's a conference game. And you have all the different things lingering within your own team that we've already addressed. You get on the plane, you go to Milwaukee, and all of a sudden, man, you're playing a second Big East game on the road. Um, very, very big win for them. Yeah. And it's a, it's a mental thing, too. Like, they saw some threes go down. Uh, they, they were able to get up and down the floor a little, but we finally saw them able to play in transition. It just it, it felt like the kind of game that they needed. To, uh, to, to, you know, kind of get the monkey off their back. Um, we also saw Villanova and Xavier play tonight. So I want to pick both of your guys' brains on this one. Who, at this point, are you picking to win the Big East? Is it, is it Villanova's league? Villanova. 
It's Villanova until it's not, right? It's Villanova until it's not. They just their their winning pedigree and the pride in their program. And once you get into conference play, I think Sean would agree with me. Like you have a certain style and system that you you play, and non-conference gives you a lot of different looks. But when you get in a conference play, you pretty much prepare all year round to compete to win your league. That's the big deal. And Villanova knows how to play their style against the different programs in their league. They just their players know what to do when they see certain teams, they walk into certain arenas. And to me, uh, Villanova had a, a rough one at Creighton this past weekend. Um, they were able to break away from that one here tonight at home. And they're going to be really hard to deal with in Philly. And I just, I just think they're, at the end of the day, going to be right there to, to win the Big East again. You know, Villanova's offense, Rob, top 10. Top 10, you know, in efficiency, Ken Palm, you start getting around Christmas and you're a top 10 something defense offense. I mean, that, that, that's going to be built to last, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they're at when we get to mid to late February, but offensively, when you're that efficient and that good, it's, it puts a lot of pressure on that other team. And uh, there's a lot of different ways. I think the key for Villanova to really be great, like they've been is their defense is good. You know, their defense is like 31. So you have a top 10 offense and 31 on defense. Can you continue to chip away and become even better defensively and keep your offense right where it's at? And I want to bring my back Baylor. If you'd say, who do you think is the best team in the country right now? I would say hands down Baylor. And the reason is they're the most balanced elite team. They're elite on offense. And I don't need to bring it up because – if we're giving Villanova credit to be a top 10 offensive team, think about what Baylor just did to them, Rob. I mean, they couldn't get a shot off in that game. And I don't think that's a discredit to Villanova in any way. I think it just shows the in, immense talent, system, and structure that Baylor has on defense. So if you look at Baylor on defense and offense, combine both of them, look at their record, who they've played. Um, I tell you, the Big 12 is a great conference, but Whoever wins that, that conference, in my mind, is, you know, the one seed that could be favored to win it all. And right now, Baylor takes the back seat to nobody. Yeah, I would you, think if, if you're looking at the Big East, um, I think a sneaky team right now in the Big East that has really done an amazing job, may have the best resume in their league is Providence. Yeah. You know, I think they're 11-1. and one. They've already got a road win at Wisconsin, at UConn. They beat Texas Tech at home, and uh, they beat Northwestern, which is going to end up being a, a quad one or two game. You know, from, they already have four of those, but they already got one road win in the bag. They're very sneaky, and uh, if Seton Hall at some point in time can get their feet back under them, they were primed, I thought, to contend here early that they could have a chance to contend for the league as well. Those are two teams that I think are right there. Um, in the Big East. So I, I, I just wanted to circle back real quick on the point about the, the Villanova's defense. Um, I thought in the second half against Xavier tonight, we really saw it turn up to another level. Mm. Uh, Xavier hit, th- this is a wild step. Xavier hit their first six threes tonight, and then they missed their, their next 17. I think they had 19 points uh, in the second half tonight. And that right there is, is something of a difference. They were 0 for 13 from three in the second half. Yeah. They, they missed their last 17. That's that's um, when we had uh, Ed Cooley on last week. We spoke to Ed before 
UConn. And I don't know if you remember the conversation, but Ed and I spoke a lot about getting to the foul line Mm -hmm. and how vital that is, especially against good teams, especially on the road. But you know what else it does? It is especially important when your three-point shooting leaves you because no matter how perfect, Villanova is a great example, how strong your ability to shoot the ball is. I mean, think about what everybody's dealing with, home, away, COVID, you know, cold weather going from here and there. There's going to be those days where you're just not going to have it. But can you still win or still score enough points on that day when the ball isn't going in? What What's the way that the best of the best seem to do it? They get shots at the basket. They get drives. They get post-ups. They get second shots. They get fouled. And I think when you look at Xavier, the one thing that's a real teachable moment for their team, because they have a very good team, and if you judge that game on halftime, you'd say, you know what? This is going to come down to the wire. Xavier has a real chance of winning. But when you really watch them in the second half, once they could not make a shot, they didn't have plan B. You know, they they weren't able. They might have had one or two, two or three shots on a post-catch score or something. But, you know, they just became one-dimensional, and that really favored Villanova. And, you know, that's the thing about December. You still have plenty of room to grow and learn. Xavier can really learn a big lesson from tonight's game, and that is don't ever lose sight of your balance. And in Xavier's case, they have guards that can drive, and they have a couple bigs that can score around the rim. You know, it would have been a nice opportunity for them to say, you know what, three-point shot right now isn't going down. We're going. We're going to go to to the next phase here. It would have been Nunji. those confident. I mean, that's what that's what Jack Nunji has done for Xavier um, throughout the course of this non-conference. I mean, if you watch Jack Nunji play against Cincinnati a few weeks back, I mean, he damn near looked like a first-team All-American in that game. I think he had thirty and fifty. How many free throws did Xavier shoot in the game? They were How ten for thirteen from the line tonight, but I think second half. Uh, I look at their their point distribution and, you know, Jack Nunji was six points and one rebound in the game. Fremantle, although he's coming back a little bit right now, he had six points in the game. That's two, what I would say, bona fide double figure inside players uh, for Xavier um, that didn't have their night tonight. And uh, to your point, the, the thing that was different about Xavier in this game was I thought in their last few wins, they really attacked inside. They were able to get Nunji involved, Fremantle involved. Um, but tonight, maybe due, to, maybe due to Villanova switching, keeping everything in front of them, um, taking away their actions and whatnot, but they weren't able to get anything in and around the rim. And Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, as Sean always, you've been talking about Villanova's defense. Villanova is small. I mean, they got big, strong guards, but when you start to go at the 3-4 in the, in the center position, at high major basketball, I mean, they're as small as it's going to get at the center position. And they get away with a lot of switching, and they're unique. But, I mean, their their weakness in and around the basket, um, especially if you get Dixon in foul trouble. I mean, if you get Eric Dixon in foul trouble and they have to go to their bench, Villanova's a completely different team. They had to bring a guy out of retirement. They did. They did. Roundtree came out of retirement. He retired, and then they brought him back. You're right. How many free throws did Xavier shoot in the second half? I don't have the second half in front of me. They were 10 for 13 in the game. Yeah, they scored 20 points in the second half, so it couldn't have been uh, 
all that many free throws that they. Right. Right. Um, Again, that's such a huge stat. The best teams do it. Uh, and it's, it's a way with a 10 point lead at the half, you know, to really look back and reflect on the game. What is it that we could have done better? I think they'll really look at, at that stat in the second half. Cause Lord so, knows the three was not going in. <laughs> so you mentioned you guys both think that Villanova is the best team in the Big East. Let's talk through Seton Hall and Providence and Xavier and UConn out of that group. I think it's probably fair to say that's like the next tier in the Big East. Who, who do you guys like the most, Sean? Who do you think has the best chance to make a run? Well, first of all, I think we've talked a lot about the power of the Big East Conference. You know, I, you know, everybody talks about, uh, you know, five major conferences in college basketball. As you know, Rob, it's well beyond that. But there's really six. The Big East right now, in my mind, is right there behind the Big 12 next to the Big 10. And when you say that, you're talking about a team depth-wise that has a chance to get a lot of teams in this year's NCAA tournament. But as important, they're capable of advancing. I think Seton Hall really stands out because I love the way Seton Hall plays. They have a true identity. When you watch them on TV, when you watch them against different styles, their style never changes. And Arch, we were talking about that earlier today, you and I. You know, what is it you think about when you watch a team play? And does that identity stay with that team? Does that identity continue to grow, to an improve. And usually when a team has a great season, that's that's what you can say about them. Seton Hall is grimy and gritty. And I mean that in, in the most uh, positive way I possibly can say those two words. They defend. The, they muddy the game up. The game is hard when you play them. It is a battle. They're like old school Big East. And when you have that style as part of your DNA, you have the ability to win on the road, win against the best teams on your schedule, which we've already seen, and and be a team that's a tough out. And that's how I describe Seton Hall. Generally speaking, when you watch them, they're a tough out. If you beat them, you're going to have to beat them. They will not go away. They will not cave in. And uh, I, I think Kevin Willard is one of the more understated coaches in college basketball. He has done an incredible job at Seton Hall. And they have a very good team this year. So, you know, we talked about Xavier and Providence, but Seton Hall, to me, that's that one other team that I really believe in in the Big East. I, I like Providence. Um, like I said, they're 11-1. and one. Um, Ed does a great job of maximizing his best players. If you ever said, like, what is, what is Providence's strength when you play them? Coach Cooley, his best guys – he gets him. He gets him the ball inside. He gets him shots. He does whatever he has to do. And his best players uh, are always the guys that are taking the shots and doing the damage. They got a great big guy, Nate Watson. Um, I know they have a couple of transfers. Al being one of them. Al Durham, who was with me for for a while, and Al's really added a lot of value. He's added some solid, solid play at the guard position for him. But they have they 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 rebound it. They mix and match their defenses and keep you off balance. But from an offensive perspective, they get their guys the shots that need to get and the ball goes where it needs to go. And Providence gets fouled more than anybody in the conference. They do a great job of mixing up their defenses. And to me, Providence is going to be a team that's going to be hard to deal with. They have confidence right now. 
I mean, you go into Wisconsin and win, you go into Yukon and win, and they already Northwestern, I think it may be Brook, that may have been neutral in Brooklyn. And then they beat Texas Tech, who's a hard, that's a hard game now, uh, playing Texas Tech at home. They may have as, as quality of a resume as anybody. Uh, but I think Providence has a premier big. I think they got a lot of different guys, but I think Cooley, he's as good as it gets in terms of being able to maximize his best players. He wastes no time with guys, you know, taking bad shots, turning the ball over. His best players beat you. And uh, to me, they have a great big guy, Nate Watson. I like where Providence is at right now. I think that that road win at UConn in that environment was one of the best wins of all season long. Um, I know they played Wisconsin without Johnny Davis, but that, that UConn game the other day on the road, first Big East game with fans for UConn, that was a hell of a win. Yeah, that, the fact that Johnny Davis wasn't playing isn't going to factor into the NCAA tournament conversation. So Providence has set yeah. themselves up to get really a really good seed, uh, yeah. to have a really strong net rating, and it's the kind of thing that's yeah. just going to raise. We've talked about this over and over on the show. It's going to raise the floor uh, for the Big East Conference. I'm surprised nobody picked um, Xavier. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say uh, it's probably because we wanted to make sure we weren't biased. People that don't know, uh, Sean recruited Paul Scruggs when he was at uh, <laughs> his 27th year uh, in the Big You know, you're not far off. Been there six years. It doesn't seem like he's been there for seven years. You know, that is so funny. You're right. But, Rob, Big East, right? Just, just talking about it through – this non-conference lens. And you're right. We, we have been redundant in how important it is as a conference to win, not just the team in the conference, but Creighton, Providence, Villanova, Xavier, Seton Hall. That's five, right? DePaul having a great early non-conference season. And then you have Connecticut and Marquette. And that's not even to take away from Butler and Georgetown, St. John's who have winning records, but you start adding all those ups, all, the, all, all that up. And when we get to early March and people talk about how many bids is the Big East going to get, you know, there's going to be quite a few. And it all started in early November and it went all the way through Christmas because this, this conference has done an exceptional job of winning their non-conference games. You know, I, I'm repeating it because it's fact. When you win 75% of your non-conference games as a conference from top to bottom, the chances of you getting the most at-large bids with the highest seeds, that's what the NCAA tournament has been built on over the last decade. And the Big East Conference has done that. All right, so we're going to pivot gears here a little bit. We're going to head over to the SEC and talk about Alabama. A couple of programming notes first. We are presented by our partners over at Bet Rivers. And if you are watching this right now on the main channel on YouTube for the Field of 68, there's a link in the description for the After Dark channel. After the new year, we are going to be pivoting all of this content over to the new channel. So please go down there, hit that subscribe button if you want to be able to follow along with this show uh, for the rest of the season. Arch, I got to ask you a question. Man. Last time we had you on here, we asked you who the second best team in the country after Baylor was. You said Alabama. Since then, they've lost by probably about a hundred to Memphis. I don't have the box score in front of me. It felt like they lost by a hundred to Memphis. And then tonight they lost at Davidson on a neutral court in Birmingham in a game that was, I don't think it was scheduled until Sunday. They were yeah. supposed to play Colorado state. Uh, Colorado state has COVID issues. So that game got canceled. So they flew Davidson into play 
uh, and they ended up getting lit up by. That was uh, their first mistake. You don't fly Davidson in on a one-day prep and think, think you're going to roll the ball out there against Coach McKillop and the Wildcats, and that's just going to be an easy one. I'm just telling you right now, sometimes it takes you a few years of playing against Davidson to yeah. have your deal down when you play them because great they are at running their stuff, the pace at which they run their stuff. Typically, the three-point shooting is prolific on their team. They don't beat themselves. They're always tough-minded. And if you just look at the game tonight, I mean, I mean, I, I think they, they finished the game with like a 1.2 offensive efficiency rating in the game, which is like incredible when you consider they were playing against Alabama. But that is an incredibly hard game. And Davidson, give them credit. They're heading into the Atlantic 10 at 9-2. and two. Mm-hmm. And This win right here gives them a shot. And I feel like the A-10 is as open as it's ever been because of St. Bonaventure's slide here in the last few weeks that, you know, that league could be open for a Richmond or a Davidson to jump in there and win that regular season. But when you asked me about Alabama last time I talked to you, they were the second best team in the country. Things change in college basketball, as you know, very fast. But they've played a heck of a schedule. I mean, name me a program in the country that's taken on what Alabama has. They're going to have a few lumps. And maybe right now they're hitting that skid as they head in, but there's no team more prepared to, to compete in their conference than Alabama. Um, I think we've seen the best of them at times and we know how good they are. I think the thing that slipped here recently in the Memphis game and in the Davids game, if you look at the amount of points they've given up, uh, it's very, very difficult to win every game scoring 80, 90 yourself. So if you're going to give up 79 to Davidson tonight, Um, You're going to have to be pretty good on offense every single time if you're going to give up these numbers. And even the Memphis game, I don't know the final of that one. I don't have it in front of me, but I know Memphis basically scored the whole way through on that game. They had no routes or no runs where they stopped them and stopped them. Alabama's defense since the Houston game hasn't been up to snuff. And um, I think they'll probably have to get some of that stuff shored up as they continue to go into conference play. But offensively, they have the firepower. I think their defense has really let them down here in the last week. Yeah, you know, I, they I remind me. Rob. Was, uh, so I didn't mean to cut you off, Sean. The, the final score was 92 to 78. They gave up. Right. 90- so in their last two games, they're giving up about 85 a game. You know, I think Sean once said, if you're going to give up 85, you better be really good to give up, to get 86 every night. Like, that's hard, man. And uh, you, your defense has got to be better than giving up that amount of points. Yeah, I, I really have like two comments and observations about Alabama. You know, first of all, one of the things that has been so impressive the last couple of years watching Alabama is that as fast as they play on offense. So, Rob, they're completely different than Villanova. Villanova is ultra slow and deliberate, methodical in their approach offensively, but very efficient. Alabama is super fast, plays downhill, shoots threes and layups, right? and has the game at a frenetic speed. But Alabama's defense, even though they played at that pace, has been really, really good, elite the last couple of years. It's not just playing fast and scoring. It's playing frenetic and fast on offense and being very good on defense. Like Arizona is that right now. Alabama and Villanova have have the same almost DNA. If you look at their offense, they're both top 10 you know, two of the best offensive teams in the country, although playing different styles. 
it will come down to which one of the two or can both continue to move their defense towards their offense and stay elite offensively. If Alabama or Villanova both continue to get better and improve defensively, which is very possible, you know, both of those teams could be in this year's final four because they score and they're so efficient on offense. And it's just, it's almost fascinating to think that both teams have the same problem, yet they're playing completely different styles. And I think the second part of it is to what Arch said about Davidson. And this is what you find in the NCAA tournament, depending on who your draw is, you know, once, once, once that you play that team, you don't have a lot of time to prepare for the style that they're very good at. Davidson is very good off ball screening, almost like how the game used to be played screens off the ball constantly, right? Balls moving without dribbling stagger screens, flare screen, the ball moves faster than the defense. And if you think about how Alabama plays, it's almost a completely different style. And when you only have one or two days to prepare and you got a couple of new players in that game, it doesn't surprise me at all that they struggled to defend um, Davidson. Because here's the thing about Davidson. Davidson also can play fast. As Arch will tell you, they not only screen off the ball and play this style where the ball has great movement, but they push it at a fast pace. They are not walk it up and, you know, trying to beat you 57, 55. That is a very tough prep that's a very tough game one of the hardest preps that i've ever been through is 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 going through and playing against davidson for the first time it actually took us a serious ass whipping on the road one night for me to say okay we need to reevaluate our system when we play them it doesn't go it goes against sort of what they do but think about this rob davidson is is a top 20 offense they're second nationally in three-point field goal percentage which means they're literally shooting the ball at almost 43%. And, you know, they're, they're getting, you know, 40% of their points from three. And that's a hard cover. That was a really, really hard cover to, to play against them. And, you know, this COVID cancellation with the Colorado State game, because that would have been a hard game for Alabama as well. But if you figure out on Sunday night you're playing Davidson and you tee it up on Tuesday, that's the identical scenario in the NCAA tournament of advancing and winning and playing a team on a one-day prep. So you take it for what it is. Watch the silver lining. A prep like that for Alabama on a one-day deal will help them down the line. But the thing I like about Alabama is when you you talk about strength of schedules and all that stuff, the thing I look at when I when I look at a team's schedule isn't the overall strength, but Sometimes you'll go to Ken Palm and you can see the rating of the offenses compiled that you've played against throughout the course of the season and the strength of the defenses that you've played against during the course of the season. It's a really unique breakdown. But if you go to Ken Palm and you look at Alabama, their strength of schedule from a component standpoint, they've played the sixth hardest schedule you can play in terms of guarding other teams' offenses. Yeah. Sixth. They've played some really good offensive teams. If you're non-conference is sixth. defensively, they've played against 43rd. So when you look at it overall in their component strength of schedule in Ken Palm, it's 16. Very few teams in the power five are going to be that high in terms of testing themselves. And they've already seen by evidence, some of the best offenses in the country, Gonzaga, 
uh, Miami, Gonzaga, Houston, Memphis, Davidson. They've already played against some Don't really forget about offense. Iona. And Iona was in there as well who beat them. Uh, but they've played a, a quality, quality schedule, man. I mean, hard, hard schedule. And, and so, Art, you're sticking with your point, either the second best team in the country? Probably not the second best team in the country tonight. But I will say this. I think they're one of the top two teams in the SEC. Maybe top three. I think you go you go with with Alabama, Auburn, and Kentucky in some order right now. Those are the three best teams. I, I wouldn't want to play Alabama. They're fearless and they're battle tested. And uh, tonight was a setup game in a lot of ways. And yeah. they will. They'll be better because of it. They'll win a game moving forward because of what they learned tonight uh, from playing Davidson. And their their non conference schedule didn't do anything but help them because when they stack up at the end of the day in March, I mean, their seed, you're going to see their seed is going to be a really high seed if they take care of business in the league because of what they did. So, Arch, we've talked about the SEC. We've talked a lot about the Big East, right? I mean, think about what UConn just did, flying to Milwaukee after a tough home loss to Providence, beating a very good Marquette team on Marquette's home floor. Tonight at Wells Fargo Arena (laughs) – they're trying to get the water on and the lights on. This is from the former, the former era. No, I'm just saying come. that's a fact. I'm not. That gonna, is a fact. I'm not going to judge them. I'm only saying we're not talking about you know a three point shooting forty three percent from three. We're talking about you got to turn the lights on and the water on so the fellas can play. Look, hey, look <laughs> to their to Arizona State's credit, there was no water available. It's dry heat in Arizona. You guys are both living in Arizona right now. Yeah, not right now. No one is dehydrated, man. Like, look, yeah, this was no. a player <laughs> issue. You got to credit them for that. No water, you can't play. Yeah. No Here's power, the thing. no air conditioning. The, guys how about this? Ramps are going to get dehydrated. You know what? As a former Pac-12 coach, what about this? Christmas present. Don't you deserve – shouldn't you go to Florida A&M? and give them the game they deserve. Shouldn't that game be rescheduled? Because look, in the Pac-12, you have a bye week. So when you play your rival, which would be Arizona, you only have one game in that week. What about them flying to Florida A&M and playing Florida A&M, making up the game because of no running water, no heat, no lights, as something that's fair? I do think that Florida A&M would probably be able to pay their power bill and pay their water bill. So I think that could work. That's a good way to make up the game. They'd be able Man. to pass on there. Yeah, uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's oh, a tough one. Uh, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> um, all right, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the other best teams in college basketball right now. Because my – I don't know if this is a hot take or not, but I do think that uh, Baylor's the best team. I think that the second best team in college basketball right now, and that might change, but right now is Arizona. If you try to figure out and poke some holes into, into that program, we did that last night with Ashton Gibbs and Steve Prone. We were like, what can we do to fix this team? What can we give them to Christmas uh, for Christmas to get them better? And it was tough. I, I'm not really sure what you need to do to make this Arizona team better. So am I, am I on the right track in saying that this team is, is the second best team in college basketball right now? You know, I'm gonna, it's, I'm it's so go hard to too. say that, though. You know, it's it's so hard to say it. Just, you know, we, we nobody's played long enough. You know, Arch is talking about Alabama. There is a difference in the schedule that, that Arizona has played so far. 
than the schedule, for example, that Alabama has played. And Alabama's taken on a couple of losses where Arizona hasn't. But Arizona, as we talked earlier about Villanova and Alabama, they're incredibly balanced where their defense and their offense are both, you know, threatening the top 10. I mean, when you are that elite, not just on one side, but that efficient on both defense, forcing turnovers, being hard to score against at the rim, using your defense to get out in transition, and then their offense being as efficient and as fast as it's been, it's hard to not say that they're not one of the top five teams, top 10 teams in in the country. I know this, Rob, they're playing for a one seed. Whether they're able to do it or not, that's the category they're in, and I think deservedly so. Uh, The starting five, uh, those guys, they all know their role, and they're all very good players. And then it's a matter of the bench coming in and doing their job. But so far, they haven't been hit with any injury. The adversity, you know, that that comes where I think some teams are playing without a player or guys miss some time. I think UCLA is a great example. You know, they've played almost the entire non-conference season. Well, really, they have without Cody Riley. And Cody Riley, as a, as a senior, is a real key component to UCLA's success. So, you know, so far, a lot of good things have happened. I know the game tomorrow, Arizona at Tennessee, will be a great game. You'll continue to learn more about both of those teams. But it's hard to really disagree with what you said. I don't know if they're the first, second, or whatever, but I know they're they're one of those teams that have every right to believe that they can be a one seed in this year's tournament. Yeah, I'm not going to go with Arizona as the second-best team because, you know, I think at some point in time, you're going to have to deal with a grinded out situation. You know, the game is going to get ugly. And uh, the only time I think it's been ugly for them was the Wichita state game, but they were up heavily in that game at times. And that's why the Tennessee game is so interesting for Arizona. They got to go into a hostile game again, a lot like they did against Illinois, but Tennessee's defense is, is, is quality enough that they could, they could give Arizona some problems, but I'm going to stick with Purdue as the second best team in the country. I just think they have the depth. I think they have the inside, the outside. And I think they have a lot of different guys contributing across the board that know their role. And I think Purdue is right there with Baylor as being one of the best teams in the country, you know, and, you know, to me, I just think, you know, if you're going to be a, you know, a final four caliber team, you got to have a lot of things in place. And Purdue has a lot of answers, you know, for you, when you play against them. I agree, Arch. I I agree. And not only not only Purdue, and, and again, looking at their schedule too, Purdue hasn't hasn't ducked anyone either. I mean, they've they've played some really good teams. They played away from home, and uh, and I think that their their team, their experience, um, haven't been through it. They're, they're, again, like we just finished talking about, Rob. Are they first or second best team? No, they're playing for a one seed. You know, they have every right to be doing that. You know, it's crazy. And I I don't know why this is, but I think like Kansas, for whatever reason, is just flying under the radar. You know, I think, you know, I don't know how Kansas can fly under the radar, but I think they're flying under the radar right now. And they're a little bit more underappreciated than most people think. I mean, they right now on offense are as good as anybody in the country on offense with Abaji and Braun 
and they have a lot of different guys. I think even if big fella McCormick can even get going a little bit more, they'll be even better, but maybe their defense isn't as good as maybe a typical Kansas team is in terms of, you know, maybe the, the, the rim protection, their two point defense is usually like, you know, top five. It's not as good right now, maybe because they're smaller, but Kansas, for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it's because they lost to Dayton in Orlando and people forgot about them, but I wouldn't be sleeping on the Jayhawks right now. Yeah, <laughs> it feels like Jimmy Martin there right now. He, he's a little bit more comfortable at Kansas because he gets to play games where the lights are on and where they're able to have power and where they're able to have air conditioning. <laughs> so um, it seems like he's enjoying it. I think he's, he's a lot more comfortable there. Hey, you got David Braun and you have Chris uh, Ochi Abaji. Right now, Braun has emerged. I mean, Bill Self has got him as a junior right now. Offensively, he's a joke in terms of those two guys as a one-two punch. David McCormick's a senior inside. He's probably got to do a little better job for him. He isn't, he isn't playing as well as he needs to for them to be able to win the Big 12, which I think a lot of people will say he'll get there. You know, he hasn't, he's played like this throughout his career. Jalen Wilson really hasn't gotten going maybe because of the slow start. But to me, with Remy Martin being new, Jalen Wilson sort of having a slow start. McCormick's kind of slow. They can still get a lot better. And uh, Kansas, Baylor in the Big 12, both those two teams are playing for one seeds coming out of that league. Yeah, I would say two things. We talked about a month back, and I think this week before Christmas, on Arch and I, our podcast, the Next Play podcast, Rob, we're going to break down Kansas on offense and Abaji and how he scores. But if you remember, we talked about, you know, who do you think's the best at, you know, the best coach, offensive coach, best defense, best. And I brought up Bill Self. And the reason that I bring him up as I think he's the best offensive coach in college basketball, A, he's done it over a long, long period of time. But he also sometimes does it not with, you know, eight first team McDonald's All-American, you know, the eight McDonald's All-Americans on his roster. So in other words, he's overwhelming you with the talent. Like he gets some really good players and he gets his fair share. But as evidence, when you look at this year's Kansas team, I think we talked about it. I don't know if they have a single high school McDonald's All-American on their roster yet they have players that have developed in his system. And all of a sudden, as Christmas approaches and you look at who's one of the top five offensive efficiency, the most efficient offensive teams around Christmas right now in college basketball, Kansas, there they are, they're third. You know, again, third, where were they a year ago? It's like every year as the faces change, not always having the best point guard, not always having the elite. And then when he does, that's when he's unstoppable, but they have a top five offense right now, efficiency. And I do think Arch, they are flying under the radar a little bit, but it amazes me how year in, year out, his teams score. They play with an amazing amount of efficiency and freedom, and they have a style that I think is second to none. Uh, but that other team, you talk about flying under the radar, because of the early games Duke played, they were on the big stage. And then they played at home in more of a quiet manner. Duke's really good as well. When, when you talk about teams vying for one seeds, don't forget about them. Don't forget about them. They'll, they'll be right there. I think the team that's probably the, the most underrated team in the country um, is USC. 
I mean, they're even underrated out here in the West with UCLA and Arizona. You know, UCLA obviously coming in. Arizona's been that fast start. Everyone's been amazed. USC very, very has went around their business and are just sitting at 12-0. and 0. You know, and I don't think enough people are talking about them right now as legitimate Pac-12 contender. Uh, coming off an Elite Eight with a lot of players. Mobley is a much, you know, he, he's he's really amped up his level of play. They got Boogie Ellis now added to the mix. I think two of the most quietly have went about their business. I, I said Kansas, but I think USC being at 12-0, and 0, I think people need to start to look at those guys a little bit more in terms of what they're doing. You know, Cole, uh, USC's on a pause yeah. and UCLA. And if you look at that, the Arizona schools play in LA right after Christmas. So Arizona will play both UCLA and USC on their home courts, huge games. And then you have Arizona state, which will, will follow. Thank God that they're not playing a home game. They get to leave. And I think running water and lights will be in effect for them on that trip, on that trip. But USC, UCLA, Arizona, Gonzaga. Why did I bring those four up? Getting the one seed in the West, Rob, is huge. It is so big. It allows you to stay in the Western time, the Pacific time zone. It allows your fans to literally drive an hour, drive a couple of hours from where they live to watch you play live. I mean, it versus going to the Midwest and having to play through, for example, Kansas and their fans, which would have that same advantage in a different time zone. And when you look at these games right after Christmas, Arizona playing SC and UCLA, and then now Gonzaga as they enter their conference play, you know, those, those four teams are all vying for the top seed in the West. And that, that is a coveted seed if if you're out here uh but i brought up ucla and usc with the covid pause i mean right now i don't know if either program is able to even practice and how long that will go you know thank goodness right now we're still we still have some time but hopefully they can both get back on their feet and be as good as they're able to be for those really important games which are going to happen right at the right at the crack of new year all right, so each of you guys gave us your uh, your most underappreciated or underrated team in college basketball. I'm going to give you mine, and I want your thoughts on it. It's Auburn. Uh, they are currently sitting at 10-1. and one. Their only loss is a double overtime thriller to UConn in the Bahamas. They have one of the best, if not the best, freshman in college basketball in Jabari Smith. They have a defensive anchor in Walker Kessler that erases everything at the rim, and they haven't even gotten Alan Flanagan back at 100%, and he was the guy that I thought was going to be their best player this season. So that's my pick. You give Bruce Pearl a whole bunch of athletes and a bunch of little guards that can create, and I love Katie Johnson. That dude, I I feel like he was made to play for Bruce Pearl. Someone with that much much (laughs) intensity and athleticism, like he was made to play for Bruce Pearl. I don't think people are talking enough about them. We talked about this, and, and I always look at this when we're getting ready to play a team. Auburn is 16 on offense in terms of Ken Palm efficiency, 15 on defense. It's back to that balance. And the reason it's so important is on a given night, a night like tonight, for example, Xavier at Villanova, can you win with your elite defense? Cause you have that too, right? Or can you use your offense so good that 
you don't rely just on a three-point shot. You can get fouled. You can score close to the basket. You have different ways. And when you have these teams right now that are good on both offense and defense, especially that good, it's much more difficult to beat them. And Auburn right now, especially when you consider, like we talked about with Arizona, not having any injuries yet, right? And hopefully they're they're able to go wire to wire. But, you know, usually something's going to happen. And now your depth is challenged. Can you still overcome it? Your point about Auburn with Flanagan having not even played yet and considering what they've accomplished, they have a huge upside. They really do. That would be my only thing for Auburn is, you know, for whatever reason, I just think, you know, when you watch them play, they're still, they're still a little bit, um, they can, they can get out of whack during a game. You know what I mean? Like if you watch them play at St. Louis, tough game, you know, they get down in that game at different times and they came back and, but they take at some point tough shots, you know, but really, Arch, really tough shots. Arch, devil's advocate, they're 12th in America in turnover percentage. Their style is what so, I said. Yeah. You, they're playing frenetic. They're playing fast. There's only 11 teams in the country that take care of the ball better than them. I mean, that's, that's, that's really Im- impressive when you, you know, think the one thing that's really impressive about those guys. And you said this, you know, Wendell green at the, at the point guard for them, he was at Eastern Kentucky last year and he's done a heck of a job for Auburn. I mean, he, he is, he is playing a ton of minutes and he's doing a great job for their team. He's a high assist guy. He's small, a little bit, a little water bug with the ball. I watched him in high school quite a bit, but Wendell Green's been a really nice addition for the team, as is KD Johnson, first-year player transferred from Georgia. So those guys being new, I think the word that you used with, with Auburn that's scary is upside. They've still got so much room to grow. I mean, Jabari Smith's only played, what, 11 games, 12 games in college so far? I mean, he's, Jabari Smith is shooting 46% from three. He's the number one pick. 45% from two, and he shoots 84% from the line. That's the number one pick in the draft. I think I said it when he was in the Bahamas. When you watch that guy play, man, there's there's a whole lot of people that look like him when, when he's on the court. Are you there, Sean? Would you take him number one? No, I I, I, I shouldn't say no. I, I think it's still too early to tell, but it, it's it's so neck and neck. You know, I think there's the same three guys as you keep watching them evolve and get comfortable. And, and we talked about this. It is so fundamentally unfair to ask that question when all three of those guys are freshmen and the month is November, right? I mean, it's like, wait a second. They, they haven't even had an opportunity to put a winter coat on. And, you know, we're asking that question. I think with each passing game and each week, you learn a little bit more, but you know, I think, you know, the big three remains the same. And I don't I don't think you can anoint any one of those three guys, you know, Paulo, Chet or Jabari as the number one pick. You know, it's hard to overlook Paulo for me. When you look at how versatile he is physically, his body, you know, playing 82 games. One thing that I learned in some of the players that I had at Arizona, DeAndre Ayton, you know, Stanley Johnson, Zeke Najee, um, the physical component. You know, I give you those names because those guys, they left Arizona physically ready to compete. But it's amazing, even when I watched guys like that, how difficult it was 
for them to play 82 games, 48 minute games, 82 games from start to finish. Like I never saw anybody in person like DeAndre, but if you judged him in his rookie year with the Suns, physically, it was a real adjustment for him. And I think when you look at those three guys, Paulo, his, his body is the most ready-made to walk in the door and be able to like deal with that 82 game grind and build off of it. And that's one reason why I really like him. All right. Well, listen, we are almost out of time here and I know I'm not John Fanta, but I am a little bit classier cause I have a high life. So we're going to do nice. a little time again. Uh, <laughs> Christmas is coming up in uh, three, four, five days, something like that. So I'm going to give the floor to you guys. Who are you, who are you wishing Merry Christmas to? Where are you sending good vibes to? Uh, Sean, I know if you're going to send anyone a Christmas present, it's going to be uh, money to pay for the electric bill so that Arizona State can turn their lights on and those kids can finish no. their season. No, I'm not sending that. I, <laughs> they, there's no Christmas present headed that direction. I They got to fix that. I do know that. And that's my New Year's res- wish to make sure that the lights stay on and the water runs for the entirety of the Pac-12 season at Wells Fargo Arena for Arizona State. Bobby Hurley deserves that. He deserves that. I know that. I know that. But, you know, I would say this on a serious note, Rob, there's a lot going on in college basketball, and it always comes back to the players. You forget these are guys that are freshmen, sophomores, or maybe in their last year of college. Some of them came back to play college basketball in a year that, they didn't have to. And, you know, I hope, fingers crossed, that we all could kind of get through this COVID uh, situation and come out at the end with, you know, those mega domes and arenas for March Madness and conference tournaments. I mean, when you were a coach and you lived with the, you know, we were going to be in the tournament at Arizona. I know Arch is going to be in the tournament at Indiana. And then all of a sudden somebody walks in and says, season's over you know it it takes you a little bit of time to get over that like we did wait a second we went through the whole year you forget these kids went through the whole year I mean from the summer and the preseason to playing in front of a crowd and earning the opportunity to be a part of March Madness and then it was like okay it's over with and then the world shuts down and then if you went through last year where no fans wearing masks getting tested before 7 a.m. every single day, going to class by Zoom, not allowed to leave your room. Don't go home for Christmas. Okay, then it's like, okay, here we go. Now we finally have the fans back. Man, I tell you what, my, my Christmas wish is that, that for the players themselves, that we can get through this and get to the end and live, live happily ever after with, with COVID in the rearview mirror. Yeah, d- ditto that. I'm just – you know, hoping, hoping for a safe and healthy holiday, you know, I think for everybody um, that's involved in not only the world, but, you know, when it comes to college basketball, that's what we live and die with every day. And I think right now it's sort of, you're starting to get some signs that things are taking a a turn for the worse, but there's some really smart people in these leagues. And, you know, these doctors are on the horn 24 seven, some of these medical specialists who these leagues and commissioners, athletic directors rely on. And I think they'll figure some things out here as they, as they get back from the holiday and we can get through it. But it's been a great start to college basketball. It really has. It's an exciting non-conference. I think the 
conference slates will speak for themselves and we're set up to have a great march but you know health is on everyone's mind right now and how, how this impacts everybody but um i think that's and, the big biggest thing and rob what a difference with fans i mean yes. that's all that we talked right. about in the month of november like oh my god look at the look how much different the game is the energy the players feel the energy it's it's really what sports is about, but especially college basketball, like winning on the road in front of 18,000 people like Providence just did that. That's what it's about. Like, that's what you miss if you're not in it. That's what you remember when you leave. That's what the players, that's, that's what they signed up for. That's what makes it all worthwhile. So when, when we talk about the last, forget this year, think about it. some of these guys have dealt with it the last, well, they all have dealt with it, but in college, some of them have dealt with it almost the end of one year, all of last year. And now here it is in their third year. So, you know, hopefully we can get through it. Yeah, I will uh, definitely drink to that. So cheers, uh, thank you, Archie Miller. Cheers to Archie Miller. Cheers to Sean Miller. Cheers to Dan Hurley for getting us a win tonight. Cheers to RJ Cole for his 20 points and seven assists. And cheers to whoever did not pay the bills at Arizona State to make sure that we get all of these jokes. <laughs> uh, cheers to Greg Waddell, our producer. Cheers to my lovely wife. Who, hey, cheers uh, to Jeff Goodman, wherever he is. He's drinking a, a really, really poor yeah, selection never, of beer. Never. I will pour out my beer before I cheers to Jeff Goodman. That's a good point. <laughs> but John Fanta, the last time I left him, he was in a penthouse suite in Las Vegas. Does anybody know where, where he went from there? I lost like hangover. Him. It's like the hangover hotel room. No, we actually haven't heard from him. It's a little bit worrisome. So if you have seen John. Yeah, it's like the hangover movie. It's his hotel room. <laughs> Listen, guys, I appreciate it. This has been the field of 68 After Dark.